All right, ladies and gentlemen, gentlemen and ladies, we have another episode, and this has been on our radar for a while, but of course, something else always pops up, and then we kick it down the road, but it's so timely because yesterday in clinic, I saw a very nice 19-year-old whose mother had PCOS. She was well-versed in PCOS. And and she came in, obviously, for irregular cycles. This was actually her second follow-up because one of our partners saw her in her first visit who started her on metformin, which is the right thing to do, and on uh, oral contraceptive for menstrual regulation. And again, right thing to do because this patient had uh, really dysregulated uh, uh, menstrual cycles. And she had the classic stigmata of PCOS, meaning she had a little hirsutism. She had acanthosis on her neck. And she knew all of this because she'd done all of her homework before. Okay, um, but then I found I said, let's take a look at a quick set of your labs. Thyroid was normal. My like, great ferritin was OK. And then her her insulin level, guys, her fasting insulin was 55. And so without really thinking or without catching my 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 words, as I'm scrolling down the labs, I see her insulin level of 55. And I said, whoa, that's wow. Fifty five. And she said, oh, I, I guess that's is that high or low? And I said, it's a little high. Uh, remember the cutoff value traditionally based on who you read is anywhere from 20 or 30. I use 20. That's what the evidence says. And we're going to discuss that in this episode. So then her next question, which was so, so appropriate was, oh my goodness. So I really am going to get diabetes. Wow. Now remember, this is a young girl, young reproductive age, uh, came in just for her cycles. And now I had this, this, you know, realization that, man, this is beyond just my cycles. This has other issues. And she's right. So we talked about insulin resistance. Now, based on her physical exam, we already knew that she had evidence of hyperinsulinemia. So then it hit me. Yeah, that's a good sign. I get it. We really, I really do need to put something together because it's been on our radar for a while since we last talked about PCOS and myo-inositol, which I also discussed with the patient and she was going to begin. Um, because there's so many different ways to look for insulin resistance. And, and so before we go any further, here's, let me be, be devil's advocate and the rebuttal to this, right? Because you may have already thought of this as you're listening to the wandering voice. Okay, and, and it's this. Well, wait a minute. Isn't all PCOS insulin resistance? I mean, that's its core, isn't it? So we already know they're insulin resistant. Okay, touche. I get that. That's fair. However, the degree of hyperinsulinemia is is something that we need to be aware of because that's not only a patient education point. It also is a treatment, a management endpoint because you can track improvement, all right? And because of our current state of health here in the U.S., which is not good, surprise, surprise, uh, we need to get on top of this because of the, the high cascade, the fall of dominoes that hyperinsulinemia is also tied to beyond cycle issues, all right? We're going to talk about that as well. So, while, yes, I get that, in, in, in some form or fashion, PCOS is related to hyperinsulinemia, it, the degree of that varies among individuals. In other words, some patients may have just borderline abnormal insulin, but their ovaries, for some reason, likely because of myo-inositol issues, see, that's the tie-in, uh, have a hypersensitivity to insulin levels, and then that cranks it up. And then ironically, it's a negative cycle where now it becomes more hyperinsulinemic. And so it kicks, it, that, that, that grinding wheel gets set into motion. 
all to say, based on who you read, I'm going to give you these numbers. Some say, oh, it's like 40% who have measurable hyperinsulinemia with PCOS. And others say, um, it's like over 90%. (laughs) And so why the difference? Because it depends on how you define hyperinsulinemia. That's why we're going to talk about that in this episode. All to say, in this episode, we're going to talk about testing for IR, insulin resistance. What is the gold standard? Well, we're going to discuss that, although nobody does it because it is super non-user friendly. And then what about the available tests like fasting glucose, hemoglobin A1C, fasting insulin? What about the glucose to insulin ratio? Or what about the HOMA IR? We're going to talk about all of these and I'm going to tell you which one I like the best that's based on the evidence. All right, lots to cover. Let's cover the IR issue right now. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves really fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So I was talking to a buddy of mine um, yesterday and I said, oh my gosh, you know, one of the things that we need to do. And oh, anyway, we're talking about things we've got planned. And um, he's a radiologist. And we were talking about the ORAD scale, and that's our previous episode. And and I said, oh, yeah, we, I just did that on a podcast. Oh, my next podcast is going to cover IR. And it's amazing how we live in our own little world, and initials means different things to us, and it means to somebody else, right? And so he said, you're doing a podcast on interventional radiology? Like, brah. No, <laughs> insulin resistance. But you see, to him, in the world of radiology, uh, right? I mean, IR is interventional. I mean, interventional radiology and embolizations and uh, uh, aneurysm treatments and stuff like that. And I'm like, no, homie, no, no, no. Insulin resistance. So IR as insulin resistance, although in our discipline of OBGYN, it's technically best tied to PCOS, oh my goodness, come on, y'all, right? IR is linked to obesity, linked to the metabolic syndrome. Uh, We can find insulin resistance in pregnancy. That's got another name that's called impaired glucose tolerance. That's the benefit, remember, and we've covered this in many times of the two-step GDM screening where on the three-hour, if you get one abnormal value, that's called glucose impairment, right? Impaired glucose tolerance aka insulin resistance. That's all the same stuff, okay? So, uh, and by the way, even in gynecology, sure, you could do a glucose challenge and, and, and check them, but it's clumsy. They got to wait the hour or two hours. And so that's why we want something that's a one-time draw as a way to determine insulin resistance as a predictor of future life risks and why you've got to get on top of it, okay? So I want to be very clear. Even though we're kind of, we're, we're, we're presenting this as a link to PCOS and in the P- PCOS population. And we're going to talk about why those patients absolutely should be screened for insulin resistance, not just assumed that they have it, even with acanthosis. I mean, get the level because it's an objective marker that you can follow, like a tumor marker in the case of an ovarian malignancy that you follow downward trend. Um, like we related that to our previous podcast with the ORAD scale, 
So it just gives you a great uh, objective marker that you can later trend and use for patient motivation and patient education. All right. Even though, yes, if they got acanthosis, duh, it's likely going to have hyperinsulinemia. But, but again, there's value in checking. And some patients with PCOS might not have clinical or identifiable hyperinsulinemia because even though their ovaries senses that, that, uh, that relationship to insulin that kicks out the androgens, their level may be either normal or just above normal. So not all patients have biochemical uh, or clinical uh, hyperinsulinemia. So well, I'm going to get into those numbers in a minute. Short to say, checking for hyperinsulinemia, absolutely necessary in PCOS patients, but not restricted to them. Obviously, the patients who are obese have other metabolic conditions. And even those who had a history of of impaired glucose tolerance who failed one abnormal test uh, during pre- one abnormal value in the three hour during pregnancy, those are the ones that you want to look later postpartum for hyperinsulinemia because this is the way that you intervene so that in their next pregnancy, hello, they don't get gestational diabetes. Do you see the value here? All right, so back to this insulin resistant issue. And I really want to talk about just a little bit about the prevalence of this because it's super varied based on who you read and uh, how you check for it. And in the specific, obviously the specific population. Okay. So there was an, an, an analysis of the NAMS data. NAMS is one of those acronyms that I always misspell and I think it's right and it's not. So remember that, that NAMS is N-H-A-N-E-S. N-H-A-N-E-S. This is not the first time that this is out. Obviously, this has been around for a long time. And it stands for the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. Okay, so National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. That's NAMS. The last sub-analysis of that data came out January of last year. Not long ago, guys. So January 2022 in their Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. And the bombshell was, wow, 40% of U.S. adults, so 18 to 44, that's who they looked at, 18 to 44 had some form of insulin resistance based on HOMA IR measurements. And we're going to get into what HOMA IR is. That's the one I like. There's a spoiler that accounts for a lot of different factors, uh, including um, um, morning hyperglycemia from nocturnal fast, like this Samagi effect. All right. And we'll talk about all that in a minute. Short of it is, according to January 2022, from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, NAMS, um, wow, 40% guys have some kind of insulin resistance in the general population. Yikes, that's almost 50%. So this argument of, wow, do we really have to check them? You know, is that really going to make a difference? Absolutely. Patients need to know this as preventative health maintenance. That's the whole reason we do health maintenance is prevention is always better than treatment. So if we can get in there and prevent the the deterioration of IR before they're diabetic, then let's do it. So really shocking, honestly, up to 40% of U.S. adults. Remember, this is not just women, just 40% of people in the U.S., according to last year's data, insulin resistance by HOMA IR. Now, I don't know if you think that's impressive or not. I think it's absolutely terrifying. 40% of anything in the population uh, is like, man, that should get our attention. 
And it's a little bit different when you take a look at PCOS and the numbers that are involved there. So in terms of insulin resistance, because remember, at its core, at some degree, there's IR, but not all patients have clinical evidence of that, a.k.a. I got to stop saying AKA. Where did that come up from? Have you noticed that? I started <laughs> I started that yesterday and today, also known as where did that happen? I I I have no idea. And that's kind of annoying. So I'm going to stop doing that. <laughs> All right. I don't know what the heck's happening. So, polycystic ovarian syndrome in the practice bulletin from the college, that's practice bulletin 194 from June of 2018. Obviously, they address insulin resistance, all right, because you can't talk about PCOS without talking about insulin resistance. However, they don't actually give a percentage of it. We're going to give you another percentage from another piece of data. But let me tell you what ACOG says about IR and PCOS. Quote, insulin resistance has been noted consistently among many women with PCOS, especially in those with hyperandrogenism. End quote. Now, even though IR is intimately tied to PCOS, remember, it is not included in any of the diagnostic criteria. So I got to say that again. You, you cannot use IR to go, ah, I found hyperinsulinemia. I told you you have PCOS. That is a prognostic tool in part of the metabolic syndrome, but not a diagnostic tool. Everybody clear? IR is not part of the criteria to diagnose PCOS. And notice how ACOG says it very politically correct, right? It's consistently noted in patients with PCOS. What is consistently? What does that mean? 100%? 50%? What, what does that mean? So it doesn't give that percentage. If you keep reading that practice bulletin, it says, hey, you should probably look for insulin resistance in patients with stigmata of hyper in, hyperandrogenism, including alopecia, acanthosis nigricans, uh, acne. Uh, take a look at these things because, again, they're all intimately tied together. Now, test to consider, according to ACOG's practice bulletin, they do throw out one, which I have no problems with. I do like insulin, fasting insulin levels. It's good. But insulin doesn't exist in a vacuum. Now, you would think that high insulin levels uh, automatically mean, uh, you know, something's jacked, right? Well, for sure. I mean, you shouldn't have hyperinsulinemia. It's abnormal. It is pathogenic. But the problem is insulin always travels with its partner. You got to look at the partner, see what the partner is doing. Because Fasting insulin gives you better information if you relate it in terms of the glucose as well, the fasting glucose. Because remember that what we don't want to do is label somebody insulin resistant just based on their IR, just based on their fasting insulin, when in fact they may already have diabetes uh, because you haven't checked their glucose. Because at some point, right, insulin is being made, being made, trying to keep that sugar under control, trying to keep it under wraps, trying to keep it under wraps. And then at some point, the cells just go like, yeah, I'm, I'm not having it. And so as the glucose rises, again, there's a reflex. It's that positive feedback loop. So insulin goes even higher. So the catch is while fasting insulin levels are good, ACOG says, quote, fasting insulin levels in young women um, and those with severe stigmata of insulin resistance and hyperandrogenism or those undergoing ovulation induction should have fasting insulin levels uh, testing considered. So, yeah, ACOG, it's in the ACOG practice bulletin. But it, and you get good info, but you get more info if you include glucose. We're going to get into the difference between uh, the glucose and insulin ratio and the HOMA-IR, right? Because they are not the same. So my point is, yes, 
fasting insulin levels absolutely good. However, it's better, you get more info if you include the glucose because you don't want to miss diabetes, all right? That's already existence because then we've just diagnosed them incorrectly. I mean, you don't just have IR. Honey, you got diabetes and we got to figure that out. And that's why that comes uh, into um, a more play here. Now, to be very clear, I don't want to be confusing here, that the HOMA value, which kicks out a number, the HOMA value is not for the diagnosis of diabetes. It is for the diagnosis of insulin resistance. Okay, the fasting glucose to insulin ratio is not for diabetes diagnosis is for insulin resistance. But if you know that fasting glucose value, because you're gonna have to input it into the calculator, which is a simple app, you don't have to do math, um, unless you just do the fasting glucose to insulin ratio, which is that's math, but again, put it in a calculator that there's no conversion factor for that. Typically, it's, I mean, traditionally, it's just fasting glucose over fasting insulin. And that ratio, that number will then tells you if the patient is IR or not. All right. So think about it. If insulin is more, you got fasting hyperinsulinemia, the bottom number is going to be bigger. So that ratio is under a certain cutoff. And I don't want to give you that yet because I'm going to get into that in a minute. But that gives you uh, insulin resistance. HOMA IR does, it doesn't tell you if they're diabetic. It just tells you, wow, they're really insulin resistant. But if you know the independent value of the glucose, if you get a fasting glucose and it's uh, 140, you're like, oh my gosh, well, that's just ADA criteria for for diabetes, period. It's more than 126. Do you all see that? So fasting insulin by itself, here's a take home, absolutely helpful for hyperinsulinemia, for insulin resistance. However, what that is actually doing in the body physiologically requires a glucose level. It also requires a glucose level for the fasting glucose uh, to insulin ratio and for HOMA IR. And if that glucose by itself, fasting is greater than 126, then that can help make the diagnosis. Do you all see why I like to, to add the additional fasting glucose? Short of it is, if you're gonna get insulin, fasting, perfect, nice. Our patients was 55, that was helpful to know. Uh, but it would have been more helpful to have a fasting glucose as well. So back to ACOG's practice bulletin, it says, hey, if your patient has PCOS, consider checking fasting insulin for those with stigmata of it. Um, and, and that's really it. But compare that to a previous publication that, that goes back to 2012 out of fertility and sterility. All right, so fertility sterility in 2012 got a, has a much more liberal take on it. The title of this publication, I mean, it says it all, is, quote, all women with PCOS should be treated for insulin resistance, end quote. Well, they're like, hey, I'm not even going to scream for that. I'm just going to treat you for it. <laughs> That's the extreme other, right? So ACOG says, yes, look for fasting and insulin if, if they have the stigmata. Uh, fertility sterility in 2012 says all women, I mean, you can scream for it, but I'd rather just treat them. Wow. You see the two bookends? I'm in the middle. I'm, I say, look, PCOS absolutely, they should have a screen for PCOS, whether or not they have stigmata, because it's good for patient education and for preventative care, all right? And then you can make a decision whether to treat them or not uh, based on those values and also based on their desires. Like if they have infertility, hyperinsulinemia, we know that that makes them more non-responsive to ovulation induction. So you can consider giving something like metformin. Do y'all see that? So on the one hand is yes, check for PCOS if they have physical issues. On the other hand, they're like, ah, I wouldn't even screen them. I'm just going to treat them. I'm in the middle. And I think that's where the comfort and most of the evidence lies 
which is you got to investigate it as part of a, a patient education. If, if you don't find hyperinsulinemia, it doesn't mean they do not have PCOS. To be clear, it does not mean that they do not have it. It just means they don't have biochemical evidence of it because it is not part of the diagnosis of PCOS. Do you all get that? But the value in checking is that, once again, if it's altered, if it's high, it's a great objective tool, not only for patient education, but for tracking. This uh, publication from Fertility Sterility was by John Marshall and Andrea Dunniff. Again, 2012 Fertility Sterility. All women with PCOS should be treated for insulin resistance. Now, remember, it's coming more from the infertility side, but it's a good read as well, even though it is, it's 10 years old, but it just gives you the varied opinions here on what to do with IR in patients with PCOS. Uh, and, and again, this doesn't really even include this discussion of myo-inositol. Man, I, I'm telling you, I'm not going to rehash that because I've got a whole detailed episode on that. Uh, we do advise that for our patients. It's a low-risk uh, over-the-counter supplement, although they got to start slowly because it can cause some GI issues if you bombard them with myo-inositol right at the beginning. Um, and and it's not for everybody. Some patients get a lot of weird nausea. Some get that GI effect. Um, and they got to stay hydrated, okay? But there's plenty of data that uh, as a way to reverse some of the metabolic issues like insulin resistance that myo-inositol at, at high dose, we're talking about anywhere from two to four grams a day, uh, long-term, can actually work at the ovarian level because we now know that that tied into that insulin resistance at the ovarian level is the ratio of de-inositol and myo-inositol. If you're like, what the heck are you talking about? That means you didn't listen to my last episode. So you got to go back and listen to that one when you're done with this one. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, podcast family, I cannot leave this discussion about screening for insulin resistance in PCOS patients um, without giving this one sentence in the practice bulletin that uh, really gives me uh, angina and heartburn. Okay. Uh, and I, 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 come on, guys, I, you know, I'm very ACOG friendly. I'm very thankful for my uh, opportunities with ACOG. Um, Oh, that reminds me, guys. I'm I'm the incoming fellow at large in 2024. Yeah, that's not giving me anxiety uh, for the for ACOG for the board. Yeah, uh, and I don't mean that like in a you know look at me thing. I'm saying holy crap, I've, I'm I'm very thankful. I mean, people who who have poured into me, who have believed in me, uh, um, Chris on. I mean, uh, Mark Tarantine, countless others. My goodness, um, it's just a huge opportunity. And honestly, guys, let me just be honest. Look, I'm, I'm super thankful and I'm also super little anxious about it because I don't want to mess anything up. And and that's a good lesson for everybody, totally off script. I think this is how we grow. I tell my kids, I tell the medical students, I tell our residents, you only grow outside of your comfort zone. So if I'm going to be saying that kind of crap, I need to do it myself. So yeah, why am I talking about this? Oh, oh yeah, right. So I, all to say, I respect the college, okay? But in 2018... In Practice Bulletin 194, 
I, I got to deal with a sentence that I just don't like, but, but, but I'm going to explain it, right? The sentence is, quote, there is little utility to routine testing of insulin levels in women with PCOS, end quote. Now, remember, this is the same practice bulletin that says, yes, if they got markers for hyperinsulinemia, uh, like acanthosis, uh, hyperandrogenism, then go ahead and, and screen for it. So do it selectively. So there is a place for it. Here they're saying routine testing is, is you know, it's, it's, uncle- it's little utility. Now, remember, 2018, we obviously have more data from that uh, because we were now, you know, five years later. Uh, and we now know a lot more things like the myo-inositol stuff. And my point is, once again, can it hurt and can it help? Can it hurt checking this? Uh, well, outside of the physical pain of a blood draw, probably not. Can it help? Yeah, I mean, we're giving a patient a known diagnosis. Now, remember the other extreme in 2012. Yeah, I wouldn't even just check them. I would just treat them. Wow, that's way over the top. So I'm trying to just, again, being in line with the college and being re- mindful and respectful of their my college guidance, where it says little utility to routine testing of insulin levels. It doesn't say there's no utility. It says little utility. So you take it for what it is. Again, they ACOG traditionally has said, just check for it in those with high markers of it, which the rebuttal for that is, well, dang, if you're going to check, why would you even check them? Because they already got markers of it. I mean, they got acanthosis. Hello, they've got insulin resistance. That's what gives you hyperpigmentation at the nape of the neck. You see that? It's kind of weird, right? So my point would be, well, dang, uh, if you're going to check anybody, I check those who don't have those sigmata because you want to get it before they develop that end organ uh, effects. Hmm. Makes sense, doesn't it? Anyway, take it for what it's worth. There you go. I'm dropping that and let's move on. That's a good point. Good point. I never thought of it that way. Guess I never thought of it like that before. I never thought of it like that. So I just uh, was told by Mike, who helps with the program, uh, if we could do this in two parts. He's like, man, please don't make this go another 45 minutes to an hour. It's too long. Um, To which I say, uh, no, (laughs) we're going to knock it out. Sorry, brother. So I just want to knock this out. So as much as as he has behested, wait, is that a word? Is that that's right, Mike? Is it behest? I think it's behest. Did I make that up, guys? I grew up in the barrio. All right, I think I th- I'm using all my like my twenty five cent words. Isn't behest like like to request? Look up behest. Uh, so do y'all behest? Right, that's a word. Behest. Like I I'm requesting. Maybe I made that up. Anywho, uh, no, I want to knock this out quickly because I think we can do this in a timely manner. Yes, Mike said yes. Thank you. Yes, behest is an actual word, which is a person's order or command. Well, tells you how much say he has in this whole thing, so I'm not going to do that. No, we're not doing it in two parts. I'm going to knock it out here. So let's do this very quickly. First, let me give you the benchmark test uh, of what we're talking about, which is the hyperinsulinemic euglycemic clamp test. This is the gold standard. So if you ever ask, what's the best way to look for hyperinsulinemia? Well, it's not fasting glucose. It's not fasting insulin. It's actually not HOMA IR. It is a detailed, complicated IV test where in one arm, they get a steady IV infusion of insulin. How about that? And then at the other arm, they get an initial flow of glucose, clamp that, and then check the the physiologic response of the body. Wowzers. Okay. Now that is called the hyperinsulinemic euglycemic 
clamp test. I'm just throwing that out there. If you really want to know what's the best, it's that. That has been re- relinquished uh, uh, or is it relinquished? My gosh, I'm getting all my words wrong. Not relinquished, banished. How about that? <laughs> banished to the research arenas. For sake of time, even though there's a variety of tests out there, there's the insulin tolerance test, not the glucose tolerance test. There's an insulin tolerance test called the ITT. There's the insulin sensitivity test. There are all these different things to do. And of course, anytime that there's all these different tests, what does that mean? No one knows which one is better. Now, they all have pros and cons. They all have their place and they all have their restriction. That's why the gold standard really was this uh, this IV infusion of glucose and insulin, cutting it off and then seeing the degree of insulin resistance based on the response level uh, as the sugar levels fall. Man, but nobody does that. Super complicated and not practical. Plus, nobody knows how to read that stuff anymore unless you're in research. Um, we all have experience with the oral glucose tolerance test, and that's fine, whether it's the uh, 75 gram, the 100 gram, and then check that follow up, and it works. But of course, it takes a while. Uh, patients have to take that time out of the day. It's already one thing to you know, have them do it when they're pregnant, uh, but that when they have other things going on, having that time taken out of their schedule just to do that test is just not very practical, right? So the ability to do an eval, ideally in the fasting state, um, is your most information. Yes, there's a place for random glucose for sure, but but you can have much more specificity and accuracy in a fasting state. That's why a fasting glucose greater than 126 has been the traditional norm for diagnosing diabetes. Uh, and a normal value, of course, uh, used to be less than 110. And now a normal fasting glucose is less than 100. So it's totally fine to just get a fasting glucose. I have no problem with that. That's fine. Um, of course, you get more information if you get the partner. Same thing with insulin. You can get a fasting insulin by itself, which is fine. But you really should get the partner. So glucose and insulin are the two that kind of tie together. Just like really you should get a um, a TSH with a prolactin. And just to be clear, TSH and prolactin have nothing to do with what we're talking about here, but it's an analogy, guys, all right? Um, but in the same way that in somebody who has uh, amenorrhea or concerns of, of, of delayed cycles, you get a prolactin level and you get a, uh, a TSH with that as well because in cases of hypothyroidism, when there's an increase in TRH, TRH can also uh, stimulate the release of prolactin. So you can go down a weird prolactin route when in fact they have hypothyroidism, right? So the point is, is that tests can be partnered. TSH and prolactin, uh, FSH and LH. Y'all get that? Uh, uh, Hemoglobin, hematocrit, and ferritin. Those are the pairs, and it's the same thing here. Fasting insulin with fasting glucose. You get more information as a team. So before we get into the paired test, it's, we've already talked about fasting glucose. What about fasting insulin? Well, that's totally fine. In the vast majority of people, a fasting level greater than 20 is considered abnormal. Some say it's a little higher in patients who are of Hispanic descent. And as someone who is part Latino, I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> but there's there really is some genetic and and you know, ethnicity-based changes to that. So some people use a cutoff of 23 to 25 uh, in Mexican-American or Hispanic patients. Short of it is over 20 is an area of concern, all right? So we've, ta- we've got fasting glucose, we've got fasting insulin, and they are fine in and of themselves. However, 
If you combine the two and get a fasting glucose to insulin ratio, now you have a little bit more symmetry. Now you have a little bit more of a physiologic picture of what's going on. This is nothing new. I learned this when uh, it had just been kind of out in press. It was kind of hot, the new thing for PCOS. Um, This originally came out in 1998. And I remember learning this. This was, I remember our grand rounds on this because it was a much more physiologic picture of what was going on with their glycemic index. All right, cool. Well, a a fasting glucose to insulin ratio of less than 4.5 has been shown to have a sensitivity of 95% and a specificity of 85% for insulin resistance. Now, this was tested, and this is really most of the data is in PCOS patients. All right, so 95 and 85, 95% sensitive. Wow, 85% specific. Man, I mean, it's pretty good. That's really good, all right? So fasting glucose to insulin of less than 4.5, and you're like, well, why is it less? Because insulin is in the bottom. We're talking about hyperinsulinemia, so the bottom number would be bigger in relation to uh, the proportion or uh, out of proportion to the glucose level, all right? So fasting glucose to insulin less than 4.5, back in the 80s, that would get you a diagnosis of insulin resistance. Now, I, I like all of those. I've used all of those. But I really am much more in favor of the HOMA-IR. Okay, HOMA is H-O-M-A-I-R. That's the homeostatic model assessment for insulin resistance. Catchy name. Uh, And let me just tell you how this is quickly, and then we'll start wrapping this up. All right, everyone, before we get into HOMA-IR, we do need to say a quick word about hemoglobin A1C because as a snapshot in time, as a uh, one little test by itself, it does have some value. We know the normal numbers. Normal is anything under 5.7. Anything above 6.5 is diagnostic for diabetes. So you've got that little gray slice in the middle, the numbers between 5.7 and 6.4. That is pre-diabetic. Uh, otherwise known as um, insulin-resistant state. The the issue with hemoglobin A1C, though, is that you could totally still have insulin resistance and your hemoglobin A1C not show it yet. It's very similar and it's akin to the whole iron deficiency with ferritin level but not yet being anemic. Remember, we did a whole episode on that, which was iron deficiency without anemia because they're two different things. You can go on for a little while being iron deficient and then eventually start showing up in your indices and as anemia. So if your hemoglobin A1C is over 6.5, that's easy. That's just diabetic. If it's in the gray zone already, well, then that makes the point by itself. But it is possible to be insulin resistant and still have a normal hemoglobin A1C because it hasn't kicked over yet. Remember that it has to outlive, that test result has to outlive the life of the RBCs. And it takes a while for that hemoglobin A1C to traditionally bump. So the whole reason that hemoglobin A1C is easy is because it just gives you that one snapshot, but it doesn't give you really the physiologic function, the picture of what's happening physiologically, like what we're about to get into, which is HOMA IR. But just to be fair, there is a huge advantage of hemoglobin A1C, despite its limitation, is that you don't have to be fasting. So that's huge, because if you're seeing your patient at five in the afternoon, which, first of all, you should be home and try to schedule your patients before that. But let's say you're running late and it's 5 p.m. 
to schedule her to come back in the morning or she has to take time out to come back for a fasting test, which is totally ideal, but it's also totally inconvenient. Getting a random hemoglobin A1C is helpful, but again, it has that limitation that it could be normal, but the patient still, in theory, at least, uh, well, not even in theory, I mean, actually could still be hyperinsulinemic and not have the hemoglobin A1c reflect that yet. There is a window of time, like the convalescent window, where it could be falsely reassuring. All right, the HOMA IR. HOMA is something that has been around for a while. And rather than just the fasting insulin and the fasting glucose as a ratio, and remember that ratio is glucose on top, insulin on the bottom, this takes the product of those two numbers, all right? Now, it's got to be in milligrams per deciliter. So you multiply them. You multiply the fasting glucose times the fasting insulin and then you divide it by a constant, and that constant is 405, all right, 405. So it's fasting glucose times fasting insulin over 405. Now, if you're doing it in SI units, it doesn't work, right? You've got to change the constant to something else. Actually, it's 22.5, but most people use the milligrams per deciliter, so make sure that when you get your fasting glucose and insulin uh, ratio that that's expressed as milligrams per deciliter, which is more US-based. If you're listening to this um, in another country, which we've got listenerships all over the place, um, you got to make sure that uh, you're looking at how you're ordering the test because the units are different if it's expressed in SI units. So here's the difference between HOMA and the fasting glucose to insulin ratio. With insulin resistance, with the fasting glucose to insulin ratio, the simple math, just divide one by the other, the smaller the number, the more the insulin resistant. That makes sense, doesn't it? Because the insulin number is on the bottom. So the bigger that number, the smaller the overall ratio result. But HOMA IR is totally different. The higher the number, the higher the level of insulin resistance. In general, even though there's some population-based specific numbers, they all hover around the same uh, unit cutoffs, right? So HOMA IR is normal with a value less than 1.0, just the number 1. Anything above 2.0 is significant insulin resistance. So this leaves you with this gray zone between 1 and 2, which is abnormal for sure, uh, but is typically called early insulin resistance or mild versions. In other words, ideally... With the HOMA IR, that's where you intervene, okay? Now, you can still intervene with a HOMA IR value of two or above, but there you're, you're now treating the condition, whereas you still have a room, uh, a time to kind of change the direction of the, of the ship, re-steer the ship between one and two, all right? So if somebody asks you what's a normal HOMA IR, is, well, well you, can, you can look at population specifics, but in general, it's less than the number one. And anything above the number two is considered uh, just pretty frank, pretty overt insulin resistance. So remember those differences between fasting glucose to insulin ratio and the HOMA IR because they are different. HOMA IR, higher the number, the higher the insulin resistance. And with the fasting glucose to insulin ratio, the lower the number, the higher the problem. All right, so they're totally different. The, the whole advantage of the HOMA IR, and the reason you divide it by a constant, guys, here it is, is that 
Well, number one, it's been tested against the glycemic clamp test and and it kind of matches that it does very well it's also been tested and validated in pcos patients um i mean fasting glucose to insulin ratio has also been used in pcos patients but homa ir does a little bit better because it 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 corrects it it doesn't get messed up in cases of fasting hyperglycemia Okay, so the samagi effect is, hey, I'm fasting, I didn't eat anything. But in some patients, remember that as they get, if their uh, glucose levels drop too much, there's a reflux uh, surge in, in glucagon. And what happens is you get a bump in, in that glucose. Wow, do you see that? So even if you're fasting, your glucose level may be artificially elevated based on your genetic predisposition and a lot of other factors. So to try to correct for fasting hyperglycemia, that is possibly a, a, a physiologic response like the synogmy effect, this is where HOMA IR comes in. Nothing wrong, I want to be very clear, with just fasting gl- in, uh, glucose to insulin ratio. It's, it's fine. It's got plenty of data. HOMA IR seems to perform a little bit better, almost like the gold standard, and it also has been validated in PCOS patients. I love how we sometimes, you know, cover things on this podcast like it's brand new, like, oh my gosh, the HOMA IR, like I just discovered this yesterday. This has been around a long time. Now, I just want to state that even though this came out by Matthews et al. in the journal Diabetic Study, but the formal name of it is Diabetologia, yeah, Diabetologia. That's the name of the journal. Ugh, terrible name. But this goes back to 1985. And yeah, I was not practicing medicine back then. I mean, give me a break, man. How old do you think I am? <laughs> I was in high school, all right? 1985. So Matthews published this as a way to rival that euglycemic clamp study. All right, podcast family. So now as we wrap this up, we've covered a variety of tests for hyperinsulinemia. I think that is a, a great thing to identify as health maintenance. Isn't that our job? Identify issues before they become a problem. So uh, yes, yeah, to say, yeah, it's kind of low utility. Why is that? I mean, in, in who's mind? I mean, how is that low utility? If you find it, you can do something about it. Um, so who do I check for insulin resistance? I check my PCOS patients, those who have metabolic syndrome, obviously those who uh, have longstanding obesity. Uh, and of course, my patient population is more young reproductive age, but it doesn't matter. I mean, this is pretty much for anybody as a way to get on top of an issue before it becomes problematic. And on that note, I think we're bring it to a close. All right, podcast family, I hope you found that helpful. Look, all we want to do on this channel, on this show, is is try to be helpful. I mean, honestly, I mean, if you don't like it, then don't listen to it. If you found it helpful, I, I hope this gave you something at least to consider. Again, take it, if you're in academic medicine, take it to your preceptees. Um, have them do a presentation on it. Uh, do it as a grand rounds. Do it as a roundtable at morning report. It's just, this is how we grow, guys, and it really is our passion. So, Anyway, and I got to say, oh, guys, I received this wonderful message today. I was driving to the office and and I got this little ping on Instagram. So, so stinking sweet. I had to uh, pull over. I had to respond. And then I I posted it because, man, it just made my day. Thank you for that encouragement. Uh, It means so, so much to me personally. All right, podcast family. As always, we're thankful for you. We're glad you're part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.